Avrin Keating, is this the part where we're the the preamble before the the thing begins? Uh, well, we can preamble if you want, or we can just start. It really, this is not a. As you may have guessed, I'm not a professional podcaster. <laughs> oh no, I I often really love it when I I'm listening to podcasts, and sometimes there's just a genuine preamble, and then other times there people are hyper aware that they need to have a preamble and so it's like a meta conversation oh god that's what we're doing right now i'm sorry oh it's now it's fine so, <laughs> well let me ask you this how did you like when did you first hear about podcasts um i first started listening to podcasts because my favorite band they might be giants was doing podcasts um and they they would have these things where it was kind of like a radio show and they would have like b-sides and just weird kind of live recordings of of podcasting so that's kind of where i first heard about it um and from there i started to dive into more i guess more random kind of podcasts i would listen to this one called the history of the english language by this guy who i think god he must have a hundred something episodes now um just going all the way back to like proto-indo-european english and I just, I don't know. I, I started listening to them because I was driving a lot. Yeah, because you, you live in California, too, not to get too specific, but you live in California. Yeah, I live in uh, Dublin, California. So I live in um, an area in the East East Bay area. Yeah, I think the pastime of California is driving. It does seem that way. Um, but I think that is kind of what drew me to podcasting was kind of like, how do I fill this time where I'm I feel really disconnected from people because I'm in this this kind of commuter town and I don't really have any community out here. Um, how do I s start to talk to people about poetry? Um, and how do I do it in a way, because I'm shy, where it's kind of structured and where I don't feel awkward just randomly going up to people after a reading and, and asking them questions? Yeah, I tweeted the other day as like jokingly, um, you know, podcasting poetry podcasting for me is just like a socially acceptable way to be a poetry reply guy <laughs> it does kind of feel that way where it's kind of like a all right well this this gives us a platform and um it's also kind of humbling for for both the interviewer and the interviewee i feel like yeah it's a lot of fun too i'm has that been your experience like podcasting is a lot of fun it feels stressful to be honest and i think um that's part of the reason why it takes me so long to put episodes out like i feel like it, it's been getting longer and longer between the times that i have done it um have released an episode and i think um part of it is the way that waves breaking is structured is I spend a lot of time with this poet's book and I stress out because I want to ask them questions that they probably haven't been asked before or deep in a conversation that they've had with other people. Um, and so I feel like a lot of pressure there to make sure that the the interview is worth their time. 
Um, and so it, it kind of, I, it's a perhaps like an unreal, unrealistic expectation I've put on myself about it. But um, yeah, I, I don't want them to be bored or just having to like repeat regurgitated responses for things. Well, let me just say, like, I've listened to a lot of your podcasts, and that's <laughs> that's definitely you've definitely succeeded. I think. Oh, I was just gonna say. Oh, thank you. Yeah, I've been listening. It was, it's really weird talking to you, actually, because I really have been listening to your podcast for for years now. I think I started listening to your podcast like before I moved to California. So it's really been that long for me. No way. Yeah, I I want to say probably one of the first ones I listened to was probably like J Dot or something. Oh, how did so? Um, did you find out about? The sh- I'm just genuinely curious, like, because, and this is a thing that you and I can both talk about, is, like, the advertising and the sort of, like, promotion of, of podcasting. Like, it seems like, it, at least for, for poetry community, it's very word of mouth. Um, yeah, I think there's probably two ways I could have found out about it. One was I was looking on iTunes for related podcasts, you know, or I found it because uh, Jay was promoting it. One of, one of the two. That's very cool. Okay, that that makes sense. Yeah, I'm not quite sure. Um, Again, it was a few years ago now. So that's that's really cool. I'm really glad um, that you're also doing your own kind of show. Like, what what inspired you to? I think you were talking about how you were going through the new masses archive, and um, there's sort of like correlation between your archival work and and this. Like, what what brought you into doing? Well, I guess all of this, this kind of dovetails with what you were just saying. Like. The, the actual conversations themselves are a lot of fun to do, but like all the other work around them is, is, is quite stressful, whether it's like scheduling people or like just like asking people or reading their work within like reading someone's book of poetry, knowing you're going to talk to them is, is not, <laughs> is not exactly fun, but yeah, oh, it's no. not the best experience sometimes. But um, because I was doing that work, like reading the new masses archives, I'd be, like, I think I've said this before, but it, it dawned on me as I was reading the work of these poets in this newspaper, basically, that a lot of them are more or less now just maybe a few bylines and a few um, old school communist publications. And I kind of wanted to talk to people because I didn't really want that maybe to happen again. And sort of because I have that awareness, sometimes I just feel a lot of pressure to like actually do talk to people in a way that's like worth everyone's time and is worth something in like an archival sense totally yeah i i feel the the same way um and i think sarah best talked about this in your interview with her where um with trans poets a lot of the times um new poets because um the canon doesn't include transgender voices of course and um so there's this sort of like new poets come in and they're like i have to figure out what's going on with trans poetry and then this kind of conversation keeps happening over and over again in, in these really ephemeral ways um and so now it seems like or one of one of my goals with waves breaking was kind of to keep these these conversations in a less ephemeral place and sometimes i wonder if podcasts are actually useful in that way or not i don't know um especially considering like I don't know how long I can host a domain or I don't know what will happen with RSS feeds in like 10 years and that that kind of like are people going to have to use a wayback machine in order to find this like that kind of stuff I'm 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 interested to see how this technology will change and if that changes this kind of like archival 
Yeah, event. well, I've noticed some people host their podcasts on, um, or at least archive them on, what is it, archive.org. And maybe that could be a workaround. But I worry about that, too, because, you know, I've been listening to podcasts for quite a long time. And there are podcasts I used to listen to that are just just gone, even though they might have some relevance mm-hmm. to the current moment there. You can't find them anymore. And if I you, like there are ones I look around for on the Internet just for people who maybe saved episodes. And I remember podcasts that had like, you know, maybe 30 to 50 episodes and I can only find one or two. And yeah, I guess I guess like this is something I talk about with poetry, too. Um, poetry itself is very ephemeral, despite the fact that people like to pretend it's timeless. A lot, it, it really does, like you're like you're saying with, like Sarah was saying with the with the Transine archive, it just oftentimes doesn't doesn't get kept for whatever reason. Yeah, and I, I think it's I've I've often kind of found it interesting that that poets will talk about writing as a as a way to gain immortality, because that just seems. Uh, I don't. I don't know. It seems like so, just not based in any kind of reality to me. Um, yeah. Oh, I tend not to trust poets who talk like that. To be honest. Yeah, that's. There's generally something kind of shady going on there. I think. I think yeah, I think that's fair to deduce. Um, anybody who's really like into the Grecian urn is kind of. I don't know. So suspect to me. Yeah, well, you, <laughs> well, you have a lot of poets on your podcast who publish with like very small houses. I'd say. Yeah, yeah. I um. Another another kind of goal that I was I was going with with the show was to. To to talk to people who might not get as much um, media coverage or um, as much attention for their work as as other poets might, um, and. I think most people who publish trans poets are indie presses anyway, or people who self-publish. Like uh, Kenning is a is a poet that I really respect. Yeah, I want to say um, JP JP Garcia Garcia was also. Yes. Yeah. 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 That's that's something too that I want to talk more about it and think about is like um, the importance of self-publishing because I I think it gets a bad rap, but I really think it's really important. Yeah, and. Um... I, there's been a lot of conversation on Twitter that I've seen about people discussing the end of publishing, um, especially folks like Jamie Beirut and, and Sarah Bess and some other folks. Um, and I think that that is really fascinating. And, and what I've seen a lot of poets say is like, I would self-publish, but I just don't have the capacity to do all of the things that a, a publisher is supposed to do. Like, marketing and distribution um etc and from when i was working in a a a sort of when i was working as an editor and a marketing manager for an omnidon which is this uh kind of uh middle-sized literary poetry publisher um a lot of the poets ended up having to do their own promotion anyway um I through social media self promotion um and there's so I, I don't know exactly how much publishers are really doing um putting putting books in catalogs and stuff but I I can't like a lot of these poets were having to organize their own literary tours you know to try and like promote readings across the states and it just seems kind of like they're if you're going to a small publisher, you might have to be doing that work anyway, which isn't what a public, like that's not 
I don't think publishers should make their poets do that. Yeah, no, I, I totally um, agree. That's something that's been happening over the past few years is um, I feel like publishers just do two things. They put less into marketing, except unless like the, they, they feel for certain they can make the book a big thing through that, through marketing. And I feel like they've also been, there's also been a move towards publishing people who already have huge platforms. Like it feels like a lot of the time, if you just get like 20 or 30,000 followers, you can just get a book deal. And I feel like, you know, and like you're saying, it feels like publishing is just trying to outsource as much of this labor as possible. And it really feels like the only thing that is maybe standing in poet's way for self-publishing is just like book layout, which is, which is quite difficult, especially with poetry. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And, um, if you don't have the ability to afford something like Adobe InDesign, um, where you, or have time to like figure out how to mess with a program like that, it's, it's really difficult. So then you kind of like do a zine thing where you're scanning and photocopying and handing out to your friends, which is, which is a fine way to like get your poetry into the world. But also if you want more than that, it's, but your time and, and money is like limited. It's really difficult. Yeah. And I've seen a lot of it in, um, in the poetry world for the last few years, like the rise of Gumroad has been really interesting to watch. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, I think, I've 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 seen a few colleagues or fellow poets. I don't know. Colleagues feel so weird. Um, people distributing their work through Gumroad and also some literary magazines doing that too, which is kind of exciting because then you can read poetry at work and pretend that you're working if you have a white collar job like I do. <laughs> I just got that email today. Do not use your work computers for personal use. <laughs> Whoops, my bad. <laughs> uh, well. I definitely didn't spend all of the MLB trade deadline looking at the baseball news. Whoops. My bad. Right. <laughs> um, so in, in that way, it's kind of cool because these PDFs are, are available everywhere. Um, and also, I don't know, to, I, what, which, which episode did you have where you were talking about a band camp kind of thing for for poetry i feel like gumroad kind of does yeah i i know what you're talking about i want to say it was with sarah again but it might not have been and that's something i've been thinking about a lot because Bandcamp. i look at Bandcamp, and i'm really fucking envious they seem to really have something Mm -hmm. good going on over there but it really does feel like well the thing with gumroad i think i said this on the podcast that i can't remember who it was with um it seems like there's also with Gumroad like a discoverability thing where it feels like on Bandcamp sometimes you can sort of look, you can kind of be in the Bandcamp universe and sort of look through people's music and find what you want. Whereas with Gumroad, it feels like a lot of the time it's just you're finding it through someone's Twitter. And it, it doesn't feel like we have mm-hmm. that sort of book universe outside of Amazon, which we desperately need. Yeah, there's there's a lack of like the kind of interstitial kind of... N- way of of finding out new things through Gumroad like you can through something like Bandcamp or even God forbid Well, well let me ask you how do you like, find the poets who you have on your podcast? Um I google like for for a long time I was just googling people. I was googling trans poets, I was googling genderqueer poets. I was um googling people who had mentioned other people. Um I didn't know anybody and so I was kind of just muddling my way through um 
I've had a couple of instances where I thought somebody was trans and I asked them to be on the show and they weren't actually identifying that way. And I was really embarrassed. Um, so I also found anthologies really useful, like the Troubling the Line anthology um, that Trace Peterson put out. Um, I think Vetch, the poetry magazine with Kate Gabrielle and Stephen Ira and Liam O'Brien, that also helped introduce me to poets. Um, but yeah, I think in the first place, it was just a lot of a lot of time refining search engines. Yeah, well, one of the I was gonna say one of the best things about your podcast is you always put like a list in the description of who you talk to and links to the various books everyone talks about. And that's been really helpful for me to find out about new poets. And I guess one thing I really did want to talk to you about, though, was like, when you started the podcast, did you like, did you know any, it sounds like you didn't know anyone in the scene? Oh, I knew nobody. Um, no. Yeah. So it what was, was really that like awkward. starting a podcast like that? It was, um, it was kind of ner- nerve wracking. And I don't know, I, uh, about a year or two ago, I went back and listened to the first episode and um, the first episode that I aired. And it was, I was really nervous. I was asking really generic kind of questions. Um, I was really honored that this person, Amir, wanted to talk to me um, because I respect their work so much. And I think poets are really open to talking about their work kind of with anybody who has actually read it. Um, And I think people are excited if you're excited by their work. So that knowing that, like, if somebody had come up to me and was like, hey, Averin, I've read your poetry. I really want to talk to you about it. I'd be kind of like, oh, cool. Somebody actually wants to engage in this, like, weird thing I do. Um, so I, th- I think that that was mainly it was kind of thinking about the reverse of that situation. And I still like I kind of know people in the scene now. Like, I have known like Jay Biesemer is a really great person that I connected with through Twitter. Uh, and through the podcast, um, he actually contacted me to be on the show first, which I thought was great. There's, I, I have to say, like, I haven't really talked to any of the guests beyond it. So it's kind of like a, I'll interview somebody and then never talk to them again, which is kind of sad. But that kind of just is the way it is, I guess. Yeah, well, you can always invite them back on, I guess. Yeah, I have not had a repeat. Yeah, uh, I noticed that. You should. I- that's okay okay maybe i should i i've been worried i i keep trying to like figure out new people to bring on because i i feel bad that there's so many great people i have not talked yeah that's that's a problem i have even though i still just so i I still feel like i'm missing people oh yeah and you're really prolific already you have a bunch of episodes out and you've already like what did you start like a month ago or something yeah well i guess with me it was a little different like i i just had ended up in a couple poetry dms with people so the the, like the real reason i didn't start a podcast for a long time was i was busy primarily but also just like the fear of talking to new people but you know like you were saying people want to talk about their work with someone who read it and liked it so you know i that's just been what what i've been going off of now and it also helps that it's again it's a it's a podcast so it's like a a semi structured environment versus uh, just like randomly going up to somebody if you happen to run into them and trying to make a conversation it feels much more awkward yeah and i and i also think like people want to be on podcasts right now and this is something i think we should talk about like the the podcasting scene for poetry is 
is not especially deep right now. Yeah, and I and I think it's kind of interesting because the the podcasts that are really popular for poetry, like Verses or the New Yorker Poetry Podcast or something, um, they have this kind of like found, foundation backing um, that helps uh, get them an audience and stuff. Whereas folks like you and I were kind of just doing this on our own dime in our own time. And it seems kind of like there should be so many more for the amount of poets and the amount of actually good work out there that there could be like, I wish that there were 10 or like a hundred or a thousand different trans poetry podcasts. I don't feel the pressure of having to like try and figure out who to interview. Yeah, no, I a hundred percent agree. Like there's, there's some like, the scene I'm a, this like the scene I'm a part of. It came out because uh, my friend James started a like a lit mag basically called Paint Bucket, and you know all these people who really hadn't published much before suddenly were publishing poems and they were all good. And I'm just like, well, you know, I know these people from Twitter and I can talk to them. So now I'm just you know talking to people who seem to only have a couple poems out, but otherwise seem very. Paint Bucket is great. I think it's hysterical. Um, which. It's it's like it's it's funny and also very serious, which is the kind of combination that makes it so interesting. Yeah, that's that's what James is doing. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I listened to your interview with him today, and he's just yes, that's the that's like he he has the kind of brain that I only have after having like three cups of coffee. Um, but it sounds like that's kind of his his mode, which is yeah. No, poetry awesome. definitely needs people like him, and I'm, I was really glad to have met him. <laughs> He's been uh, really helpful in so many ways. Like he was, like I said, he was the one who told me how to podcast via Discord, which has been the only way I can do it, frankly. Yes, um, I. A lot of people are talking about like, oh, anybody could start a podcast. Um, but when I was first starting trying to sort out the technology aspect of it was really actually kind of difficult, especially if you're trying to do something kind of quality where you're, you're separating out the audio channels and then you're, you're cleaning up all of the sound and you're making sure that all the tracks line up um, and that it's somehow accessible to your interviewee so that they can just click something really easy and then just have it be done. That, that was not available when I first started and I'm really glad that Discord exists. I also use something called Zencaster, which I paid like 20 bucks for. Um, and that kind of like puts you in this chat room area where you can just click a microphone button and the other person will automatically get to start talking in a separate audio channel and you can both still hear each other. Like it sounds so basic and yet it was such a pain in the ass. <laughs> um, I was also like, I remember I was trying to be my own editor. Um, and so I would sit for hours and hours and clicking, cutting out all of the ums and the ands and the awkward pauses and the, the parts where people were fucking up. Um, and I realized a couple things. One was I had forgotten to save a file while I was editing it, editing it and my computer died. And so there were several hours wasted and I almost quit because I was exhausted and the other thing was I don't need to be doing this to my guests um, there's something there's something where you want them to sound, sound as smart and as composed as possible but then you realize like I'm imposing these weird kind of 
classist-based ideas on on what smart sounds like and what what a natural conversation that somebody would want to hear sounds like. Um, so I, I stopped pretty much. I stopped cutting out most of those, and then also I hired an editor because I was tired and editing is not my thing. So that I don't I don't know what your editing process has been like, um, but it sounds like maybe from from the episodes I've I've listened to that it sounds much more natural, especially than what I was first. Doing. Uh, I wouldn't say natural so much as like low effort, but I do totally get what you're. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. No, it's yeah, cool. go ahead. It's cool. No, um, it's more like I like I totally understand what you're saying about wanting to sound smart. It's just I I had this sort of realization where I'm just not very good at talking and podcasting. So I just decided <laughs> I just realized like there's no amount of editing I can do to stop all the likes and ums from creeping in. So I may as well just go with it. And hopefully my guests will talk a lot more than me. <laughs> Yes, um, that is always the goal. Um, I, I, I don't know. I just, and I also kind of find it really exciting just having smart people come on and just talk, and just like hearing them talk about about their work in ways that you helped like them get to. There's something really satisfying about that. Oh yeah, I totally agree. That um, like one of the one of the joys of podcasting is um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you can you can buy that book forthcoming in 2020. No. I'm so excited. Are you going to self-publish? Oh, that's a good idea. You can buy it on Gumroad in 2020. <laughs> but uh, excellent. Yeah. But yeah, one of the best things about is seeing people like not seeing, but hearing people sort of speak nat like speak naturally because like especially with poetry, it's it's so highly, you know, mediated and edited. And, and that's what I, that's one in a lot of ways, that's what I like about it. But hearing someone actually talk, it really can put their poems in a new light, I feel like. Yeah, definitely. Um, I, and I, I feel like I'm a really terrible reader of, of poetry because I feel like I have to read the person talk about, like, I have to read an interview or read a review or something in order to kind of like feel like I, I can get the context and what this this poet is working with, um, because oftentimes I feel like I come to a a book of poetry and I just ha- like I'll read through it and I'm I've just I have no idea what's going on. Like there, and I I talk about this with my this guest that I'm gonna post soon. I promise. Um, Samuel Ace. I talked to Samuel about his new book, Our Weather, Our Sea, and I was like, Sam, like I have no idea what's going on in your book. I don't know what's happening. And he was like, that's fine. You don't need to. Um, I don't know where I was going with this. No, you're cool. Uh, I, I had that problem. Like when I was talking to Ms. Hilda, cause I'm not like a language poetry person and there's like severe limits to how much I know about that stuff. So it's just kind of, <laughs> and that's in that situation is just kind of like, well, let's just uh, see where she takes the conversation. <laughs> right. Yes. And it's kind of, it's it's really helpful to be able to just kind of like ask direct questions and feel okay about that kind of vulnerability of like I and it it's also interesting the the level of vulnerability 
that I feel at least when I'm asking really kind of direct naive questions and kind of admitting the fact that like I don't get this because I I, I don't know if it's the way that I was trained as as a student of writing, but I feel like I those are not the questions that I am allowed to ask. A certain a certain genre of podcast I find interesting that maybe would be fun to do in the poetry world is um, like Russell Splaney is an example of this or um, Reply All does this where you have maybe one or two hosts who like know the topic and then they have maybe one or two people who one or two other hosts who come on and like ask them questions about you know what and Reply All it's about like weird internet subcultures. And, and, oh yeah the, yeah the yes yes no. <laughs> yes exactly. Yeah and I feel like that could be a fun model for the poetry world in a lot of ways because I think but primarily I think it's because a lot of the time it feels there's a lot of pressure with poetry that you just have to get it. Yes and also I kind of I worry that my my feelings around this kind of slip into me sending like I, I'm against intellectualism, which I'm I'm not. It sounds it's more of like it's less of a poetry. I don't get it. Poetry should be more accessible because I don't get it, and more of a like I really want to understand this. I want there to be multiple avenues, and I need multiple avenues in order to appreciate this more. Um, I don't know if that makes sense. No, I get it. Like it's not that sometimes that poetry is is difficult. It's just more that. You can need help understanding where, like, what the poems mean sometimes, and that's not that's not always a reflection on the, the person, the poet, or the person reading them. It's just maybe something. It's just you need help sometimes, I guess, making it not such a big deal. Which I think is part of why the sort of reading poetry as comic books thing has gained a bit of steam amongst my podcast listeners. Yeah, I just you were just talking not as in maybe you were talking about it today, but I heard you today so <laughs> bring up that idea, and um, I think that that's great. Um, and I, I also I'm I'm interested where that we're on this topic. Oh, I'm interested that we're on this topic because I've been trying to read more and understand more Marxist literary theory. Um, and that's a place where I kind of read Jameson over and over and over again and still have no idea what's happening. How did you get into, I, I guess, like, I'm, I'm interested in your development as somebody who is invested in Marxist literary theory. Like, were you, how, how did it come about that you brought, I, I don't know, I'm, I'm just interested in kind of like how people come to understanding Marxist poetics. Um, like what what has that journey been like for you? Yeah, well for me, I was lucky enough to study a lot of study a lot of Marxist theory in college. So I I kind of feel like I one of the things I want to do with this podcast is maybe share some of the the knowledge I have about that because I I was fortunate enough to to like actually study it in in a university. But like in terms of reading it, I think like good places to start are probably like Raymond Williams or Mike Davis just for like general Marxist theory and a lot of the times you can just sort of build from there to Marxist poetics which is a much can be a much denser field I feel like but it's not especially if you're someone who already likes poetry if you just read a few Marxist type books and you already know the poetry it you're not that far off really from eventually getting the poetry 
like and i think some of it too is just finding the right critics that you want to read because there really is a, a huge range and um it a lot of the times like especially with someone like jameson and i'm not knocking jameson here it's just like i just feel like he's probably not for everyone and there's like a lot a number of reasons for that but yeah there's just certain theorists i feel like who people feel pressure to read and maybe it's not the best thing for them to read at that time anyway Okay, this is really exciting for me um, because I was under the um, impress the impression that there was like five main dudes in Marxist literary theory, and that they and that everybody in that five named group and five is an arbitrary number I just made up, but it was a small number of people um talking to each other about each other and about philosophers and economists um of the past but it, it sounds like from what you're saying there's a several different takes of from a much wider pool of people yeah i mean and some of it too with i i think i probably know could guess some of the five-year well the imaginary group you're talking about <laughs> and like yeah i i've read some of them or i've read some of their stuff or all of their stuff depending but it it really depends on, I guess, what you want out of it. And some of it, too, especially with the canonical Marxist works, is, you know, another way in for people is is through race or, or gender-like versions of Marxism, whether it's... Um, you can get there just as well from there. And I'm not saying, like, that's any, what anyone has to do. It's just, it's, it's just as valid a way to get into that stuff as any other. And a lot of the times, like, some of that stuff is... Gen genuinely more fun to read like a lot of theory that's come out in the last like i don't know 20 or 30 years is is pretty has some humor in it and is can be more readable especially once you get the language they're speaking in that's really cool okay um i feel i feel heartened now um i was starting to get kind of like i don't know I, I was starting to feel like I'm just really not smart enough to understand this no and um, i think and i think one of the things is too is you have to like you can just read like the intro basic people that it feels like everyone talks shit about and it feels like, Oh, maybe they're wrong or maybe they're not good enough. Like you can like, it's totally valid to come to Marxism through David Harvey or Noam Chomsky or Howard Zinn and get into some other stuff from there. I, I came to it from, I was, um, I went to school in Oakland, uh, California and I studied under Juliana Spar. Um, and so I think that's really where my, my in interest in in marxist politics i i don't think juliana identifies as a marxist i think she identifies as an anarcho-communist yes or, i believe so yes so um but uh, it kind of like got me thinking more into more strictly leftist uh po poetics and so from there i went to marxism and then also meeting and talking with Kay gabrielle um who guided me to Jameson and I think Terry Eagleton and some other folks. I, I started to try to like do some more of my own digging and. Oh yeah. Terry Eagleton's been... another accessible one, I think. Yeah. I, I thought he was pretty funny. I read the, uh, what was it? His, his book, um, introduction to literary theory, which was kind of this big sweeping kind of, um, overview of, of poetry from the romantics to, I think when he finished writing the book, which was the eighties. Um, which was really fascinating and, and, and funny in a lot of ways. Yeah, I really do think theory now has sort of embraced a kind of, a, a kind of humor. So 
it's not all it's not all dry stuff out there anymore thank god yeah some of that i don't know some some 20th century russian stuff or german it just yeah it's it's pretty daunting <laughs> um and i th- i also kind of am interested in marxism because of a lot of um the new narrative folks in san francisco were i think didn't they meet in a marxist literary group or something like that and so um century of clouds was written when he was at a like a marxist summer camp or something like that yes uh i recently read that because um david pritchard um is doing his dissertation on new narrative and he sent uh sent me some of the sources and yeah that that like they're they were friendly with jameson yeah yeah but so like well how did like how did you come to i guess like that kind of leftist poetry how did you come to new narrative i kind of came to it i think through being trans um and kind of more and more seeing poets who were kind of reflecting my lived experience also had these politics and these ideas and they were working in conversation with um these different political uh writers and so i think that's how i came to it to be honest um because when i when i was an undergrad before i came out i was very much not i i identified more along an apolitical line which is itself now i understand apolitics um but it, it didn't really I didn't really start to see the context I was writing in until I was older. Um, so I, I, I guess that's kind of the the nutshell of it. Yeah, um, if this isn't too personal a question, like what what made you realize that context? Um, for myself or yeah, I guess so. Um, that was a a long one. Uh, that's a long. So essentially, I. I didn't fall under like a typical trans narrative. I don't think um, I didn't really kind of find the language to articulate myself until I was doing research for a film script. My ex and I were writing. Um, we were writing a story about somebody who goes under gender transition. And I, I don't think I called it that at the time. And I was doing research in the library at SF State where I was going to school. And I found this book on drag queens in London in the 80s. And there's this one queen who was talking about how they didn't feel like a man or a woman. They felt kind of like this other being, this other thing. And I was kind of like, oh, fuck. Like, that's that's how other people feel this way? There's other... This isn't... I'm not just crazy? Like, And so that's kind of where I started to articulate my identity as this other gender. I, I was using the phrase androgynous at the time. And I still kind of, I still do sometimes. Um, but that's, I guess that would be like, I don't know, 2009, 2010, something like that. Um, but I didn't really find language like non-binary or genderqueer until Tumblr. Uh, which may be uh, 2012, something like that. It's kind of hazy now, um, but it, it was back then. Yeah, well, 2012 feels a long time ago, and so does Tumblr. Uh, it's, a, it's all a distant blur in my mind. Yeah, definitely. I was on Tumblr a lot. Same um, here. Yes, and I think uh, 
I don't know. I Tumblr kind of I fell out of using Tumblr when I just like had no more time in my life. And then I kind of when I got back to it, all I wanted to do was like look at porn and read gender stuff. And now there's no more porn on Tumblr, so it's like, what's the point? I think that was <laughs> I think that was a lot of people's experience with Tumblr, it seems. <laughs> Like to be blunt, that's that's pretty much pretty much it. Yeah, I, re- I mean, I remember the jokes back in the days. Like, we saw every once in a while there'd be like an intense politics debate, and someone would just be like, "You guys know this website's like ninety percent porn, right?" Oh my god, I got yeah. I remember I got into a huge ar- uh, argument with some random guy about his use of the word hysterical, and oh, I was just like. It was one of the most pointless political debates on the internet I've ever gotten into. Um, and it's interesting because I I generally these days refrain from making my own statements on Twitter or on social media. Um, I've, I feel like as I've gotten older, I've gotten quieter and more hermit-like. And... Um, I think what I've really enjoyed about Twitter is kind of seeing all these people who are really, really smart, kind of like laying down their takes in a way that I wouldn't be able to articulate myself. And I'm kind of like, why would I say what they've just said? They've said it better than I could. So I, I generally am a retweeter. Um, and I think podcasting for me was kind of a way to retweet on a grander scale. If you think about it, it was kind <laughs> of like, it's like I'm I'm kind of like putting out this this person's work that I think is really important and who who's who's so interesting in conversation um and here listen to them they're great go buy their books go buy their friends books if you can't buy it get somebody to send you a PDF I'm sure they would um yeah, yeah. well what's really great about like book podcasting I feel like is you really can actually like move book units of your friends books because people like listen to podcasts like all the way through and then go buy the books like i've i know i've done that yeah definitely so um what are you i guess what are your long-term do you have any kind of like long-term ideas for what this podcast is gonna end up like my girlfriend was just asking me about this last night and i really didn't have a great answer (laughs) (laughs) no you're good um yeah i i really don't know what's gonna happen because right now i'm just doing so many episodes and i i'm kind of curious myself to see where it goes because it feels like there is some kind of momentum towards something but i'm not sure what it is i've been talking a lot with with tren and i feel like there's there's a need for a new kind of aesthetics out there a new kind of way of doing poetry because you know i've seen a few sort of aesthetic movements come and go like you know alt lit and then now the irony thing and it just feels like i don't know it feels like something else is in the offing and i'm just not it doesn't seem like we know what it is and i think i kind of got touched on this with a conversation that i have yet to edit <laughs> with um Grieveland, but um i'm sure that'll be out soon i'm really excited to hear that because i i think that you're right and it's it's um it, it feels kind of like a we've gotten past a, a point where 
it's not it doesn't feel like it's it doesn't feel like irony is given the the same platform that it, it did maybe like 10 years ago like irony to me as someone who's been like shit posting for like a decade now irony just feels like so pointless to me now i i just like what is what are we even doing here yeah it's kind of like if i if i wanted to like see people be sarcastic i'd just go look at memes i i don't need that in my poetry right now um i think it's kind of interesting the the poetry that i'm seeing now is is vulnerable and it's also it feels um like like people are actually talking about anger now and talking like andrea abikaram they have this this book out about or in part that's a part about um revenge poetics and as soon as i talked with them i was for the first time i met them at mills and they were working on the kill bro kill cop poems and i was like a revenge poetics that's so interesting i don't know if i've ever read poems talking about revenge that seems so like why haven't we talked about that what why are poets not expressing like intense emotions or or fantasy fulfillment in their work um i don't know so i, I think that poetry is changing now and and i think it's because of the the heightened level of bullshit going on um in our country so i i'm also interested in figuring out i i wish that i could talk to other poets i i've talked to nat raha who lives in um scotland but i haven't really talked internationally to other people and i'm i'm wondering if this kind of energy and intensity and sort of honesty is is happening in other places too yeah i i'm definitely also curious to talk with more international folks um you know and a lot of the anger here feels like it's been repressed by the poetry institutions at large you know i've i've been submitting poems on occasion for a few years now and you know i write i i don't really write angry poems i would say but i always slip a you know um fuck the police or whatever in there and mm -hmm. <laughs> i feel like that's probably a reason i haven't really been published very much and it feels like spaces are starting to open up where that that is actually considered acceptable and i also feel like there there has been these discussions of anger in the media and stuff like whether you're looking at old novels or looking watching horror movies or whatever there are still spaces where it's it's being heavily considered but it's never for whatever reason the literary well i think we can guess at some reasons but the literary world itself seems to want to exclude these these emotions right um yes because it's it's dangerous um and i i'm I agree with you 100%. I think. Oh, and I, before we go on, I just want to say people should go listen to those two interviews you just mentioned, by the way. Those are I, those are both really good. Oh, geez. <laughs> it wasn't. Well, the way you were talking, it wasn't clear that they were actually podcast episodes. And I can confirm they're, they're both podcast episodes you can go listen to on the Waves Breaking podcast. Wavesbreaking.com. Um, yeah, I, <laughs> I, I agree with you. I think there's more space now. I think. Um, especially after um, Occupy and what happened in Ferguson, I think that there's there's more... People are... There, I, there's less of a, a veil 
I feel like it, it feels like people there's much more energy in and it's acceptable to express this energy because people can actually see like there's just uh, there's a more heightened visibility on how fucked up things really are right now um that it, it would feel nonsensical for anybody to repress others talking about that yeah and i would say too this is like having just listened to a bunch of your podcasts that you're ready for this episode that's something that has really been uh apparent in in trans poetry for the past few years i think yeah they're because the the stakes are so high it's like trans women are being murdered on horrific it's it's horrific the the amount of of poverty of of neglect of violence that is happening in the to the trans community and we so we we've been having to to write and discuss and sort of like grieve these things for a really long time um and and i think it's interesting now that more uh, i guess more people are are discussing these issues as well people that might not exactly be in the in the battlefields every day fighting this bullshit um so it's kind of heartening that people are speaking to it more um we're not there yet obviously but it's getting better. I, I think people are becoming more aware that these are issues. Yeah, I feel it. I, I agree that it's becoming more pervasive to talk about these things. I think the one thing a lot of guests on this, a lot of guests on this podcast have worried about is the fact that it's a lot of it. When you look at what liberals are doing, a lot of them are blaming it all on Trump. And it, I, I do worry that as soon as he's out of office, everyone's just gonna be like, Oh, it's all, everything's fine again. And that just plainly isn't the case. Right. Is yeah, and I, it's obviously been like this long before Trump, and it will probably continue after. Um, I, I'm worried about the people who are like in the quote unquote resistance who who still really wish that Hillary had been president and um, think that everything would have been fine if only she had won, which is absolutely not true. Um, and it, the one thing about Trump that is. I don't know how to put this. I think like he, he's so terrible. He's just so evil that he he galvanizes resistance in a way that like Obama obviously did not. Um even though Obama was like deporting people and and dropping drone strikes on people and never actually closed Guantanamo and all the in like imprisoning journalists and all this other shit. Um but Trump is just like a cartoon villain evil that, yeah, I'm, I'm really, I have no idea what's going to happen in the next election. I, I, I don't know. Like, I just have no idea. I'm, I'm also worried about a lack of, of moving forward and actually making real change. Yeah. I would say the one thing though, that is, one thing, though, is I think that for a lot of conservatives and, well, racists, frankly, Obama was, like, the cartoon character that Trump is. Like, if you look at the conservative media or cartoonists or whatever, um, Obama is Trump to them, like, the way... And I'm not saying that's fair or anything, but if you look at the their portrayals of him, it's 
he is the the cartoon character that Trump is essentially. And I don't like, I just worry that, you know, well, I don't worry. Like, I just don't think there's any possibility of quote unquote normal returning because of that. You know, it just seems like, yeah, you're right. You're totally right. Um, I kind of, my, my California bubble was kind of there for a second where I, I had forgotten some of the really terrible kind of racist caricatures and stuff that were happening. Um, yeah, I, I kind of have been in this California bubble a bit too, because I moved to California from a very conservative place. And I don't know, my, my, my dad was texting me all the time in 2015, like, yeah, Trump's going to win, Trump's going to win, Trump's going to win, because, you know, where I grew up is a place that voted overwhelmingly for him. All Everyone had fucking Trump signs on their lawns. Yeah, you're right. Um, and it's really interesting too, because where I grew up, um, up in Vacaville, which is Northern California, it was, yeah, I think it was a pretty purple town. And then as you continue to go north, it just gets more and more conservative. Um, so I, I guess I even had a more like Bay Area filter where um, most of California, I think, it, it was also really interesting. I was just down in um, San Diego in July, and even down there, there were overwhelming numbers of of Trump supporters that I hadn't I hadn't seen because I hadn't been outside of California. Um, it's really wild, um, but also makes sense in a bad way. Yeah, like the longer it goes on, the more. Like the longer this this hell world goes on, the more it it does like the logic of it does become become clear. I think, in some like really ugly ways. I don't know. Like, you know, like there's like you're saying those purple towns, like where I grew up, all the small purple cities, like say Scranton, just went red. Like just went full red. I don't know. I guess. Well, <laughs> once again, the poetry podcast has gotten way too political. That's <laughs> a Marxist podcast, <laughs> right? Yeah, no, I'm just, I'm just joking. Um, All right, <laughs> no, um, I feel like I, I often get into politics a lot too on my podcast, even though it's not even explicitly in the title. It's just like you can't not help talking about it. Um, it's just, it's constituting everybody's life. Um. And so, of course, we're going to talk about it. Yeah, I felt like, well, good. I feel like a good episode of your podcast to bring up in that regard would be like um, Ching and Chen's episode where you, where they, they talked a lot about, like a lot of the things Sarah Best touched on, like, you know, the, the work in the archive and trying to, I guess, understand these histories through, through poetry. Yeah, their, their work with the, um, it was an art museum. Was it Texas, I think, or? I want to say, I'm. I want to say it was, um, I went to school in Boston, so I, I think it was in Boston. And so I, that's, that's why I'm like, I'm aware of this. Like a lot of the valuable Boston art is actually from Asia because of, you know, the quote unquote China trade back in the 19th century. Mm-hmm. So they have a bunch of, you know, fancy porcelain and woodblock prints from, you know, China and Japan. They had done commentaries on, I think, that work. Yes. Um, yeah, I think they were writing uh, museum descriptions um, that people would see in the ex- in the exhibit. If I remember correctly, I might be completely misremembering. Yeah, well, my, you're not my memory's failing here, too. But I guess what I was getting at is a lot of the poets you have on do try and do that, like, 
not necessarily the archive. Well, they, they look at, there's, there's an awareness of the archive, but a trying, but an attempt to, I guess, make sense of the realities and the, their own lives through, through poetry. Like, and it's like you said, it's not explicitly poetic, uh, political, but it's, there's a constant grappling with that dimension. And I don't know, I guess, I guess I really relate to that. And that's something that I've enjoyed learning about while listening to your podcast. Oh, thank you. Um, yeah, I feel um, a lot of the people I talk to are trying to get in touch with the past in one way or another. Um, it's, it's kind of this simultaneous kind of reaching backward and also trying to figure out a livable future um, and trying to like find clues in these, these previous creations, either poetry or, or sculpture or music or whatever, and trying to, trying to find these conversations that might not have been recorded otherwise and trying to understand it yeah they were they were now that i'm remembering it's coming back to me a bit they were really talking about trying to um connect with that a sort of lineage that maybe isn't there to some extent and trying to rebuild that through poetry which i feel like um, matilda actually mentioned this briefly we talked about it with respect to um the susan howe Emily dickinson and i and it, it, it just feels like that's that's something that really is going like that, that sort of um, desire and that sort of work is really having a moment right now, I guess, is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, I think you're right. Um, I think that's having a moment right now. And I think um, speculative poetry is having a moment too. Yes. Yes. Um, it's really interesting. I often kind of find these, um, these threads in people's work where I'm like, this seems kind of speculative. This is really interesting. And then people think I'm into speculative writing, um, which I'm slowly getting introduced to more, but I'm not, I wouldn't say I was like a, I was invested or a big fan in it or anything. Well, what are like you, that. what are you slowly getting into? I, I've recently read China Mielville's The City in the City. Um, before that, I was reading um, Renee Gladman. Um, and there's this really weird book I read called The Third Policeman. Um, by this Irish guy, and it's just... I, I, I'm into kind of speculative fiction that's also... Noirs. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I know the genre you're talking about. Yeah, they're kind of... Now that you're saying it, it's kind of like a police... They're all in police investigations. Yes, that's a, a... A lot of Marxists have gone into that sort of speculative, noirish genre. And I... I that's not something I've actually gone into a lot, but that is totally a thing. And I don't know that that's an interesting thing to bring into poetry too. That's so, I did not until you just said that I had not connected that. That's so cool. Okay. Um, wow. <laughs> oh, wow, yeah. I'm really kind of cool. into the more speculative side. So I don't, I'm not a huge Mieville fan myself, but he's on the list of things to read, but I end up more doing, I think, um, try to think like uh, Ursula Le Guin or Samuel Delaney more so. But I don't know. Yes. You're, it, totally, it is like the the whole speculative genre though is definitely having a moment. Yeah, the, those two. I um, just finished uh, Left Hand of Darkness again, and I I read oh, what was that one Chip Delaney book about? Um, it was kind of the Sapir Wharf. Uh, Oh, Babel 17. 
Yeah, Babel seven Babel seventeen. I read that one and I loved it. I, there's just so much that I really want to like get into. And what's really cool is that um, speculative fiction is often available in audiobook form, which is very exciting for me. Yes, um, yes. <laughs> whereas Wait, poetry me, me, isn't. Sorry to interrupt, but have you gone through a thing t- like recently where you've kind of started listening? I've personally I've gone through this. this is why I'm asking. Like of like maybe podcast fatigue to a certain degree and switching to some audiobooks. Oh, a hundred percent. Yeah. I feel like, I feel like that's a real thing and I've been up to that too. Yeah. Where I'm like, I'm all caught up with my podcast episodes that are in my, my stream and I'm really tired. I want something longer form. Like I want to listen to something really like, I want to get lost in this for a little bit. Yeah. And get in some more details too. Yeah, definitely. Um, a really great audiobook I listened to was, um, uh, was oh, God damn it! I'm 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 spacing. It's the Kaz, Kazuo Ishiguro with about the butler. Remains uh, of the day. Yes, thank you. That <laughs> no one. problem. Um, my uh, my old quiz bowl instincts kicking back in. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. I'm just like, yeah, I'm I'm starting to fade a little bit. I think yeah. Oh that, no problem. That audiobook was fantastic. If listeners want to check that out. I'm a big fan. There's a lot of good audiobooks out there. It's it's really like an it's an increasingly popular genre. It's something I like to yell about on twitter.com is the fact that <laughs> small <laughs> small publishers really need to get on that train. They're just selling the rights to these big big conglomerates who don't fucking make the books. And I feel like there's money to be made there. The problem is making audiobooks just costs I think a few thousand dollars, so it's not exactly cheap. Which is kind of ridiculous because when I, I used to read books for for somebody who was in one of my classes that um, wasn't able to to read like through sight, so I would I would record the books that we had to read for class for them, and it's not it does not cost that much money. Yeah, <laughs> I mean the thing is, some of it has to do with copyright, and the thing is too, I think a lot of the narrators of these books are actually, in my opinion, like quite talented and good at reading. And I feel like they they probably deserve to get paid for paid for that to some extent, but uh, so much of it though has yeah to they're be like copyright actors. They are oh yeah, yeah. Person. Oh, something you might like is there's some I'll, I'll send you one, but there's some podcasts with um the voice actors where they talk about it. And I think there is a push within that to unionize through SAG-AFTRA. Oh, that's great. Yeah, I, I figured it out because um I listened to a Mike Davis audiobook, and um, at the end the uh, the voice actor was like. And I'm a, this is a SAG after a union production. I was like, oh shit. Wow. That's yeah. cool. Yeah. I was like, oh, this is good. <laughs> um, but to, I remember, so I, I was bringing that up because also, speaking of Bandcamp, I think Timeless Infinite Light, when they were still around, were putting up audiobook versions. Oh, are they gone? Yeah. They, they, uh, they folded, oh, they got absorbed into Nightboat, I think. Um, oh, that's kind of that's kind of surprising to me, to be honest. Yeah, because they were. I I mean, because they had. I'm just surprised because they had Raquel's book, and that did so well. Yes, who I you agree. also had on your podcast. Yes, uh, but I'm, before that, or before even that book, I, it was right. I I think I got an advanced copy of ter- Tertiary, and then yeah, it was. It was that's awesome. I got an advanced copy of that, and so I was able to talk with Raquel about the book before it was released. 
Yeah, I do remember you talking about it. So you must have got an advanced copy of it. Yeah, I think I just got a PDF or something. Um, but yeah, Timeless was one of my favorite publishers. Yeah, they were putting out a lot of good stuff. That's why I, I just, oh, I missed the news apparently. Yeah, it was kind of, they had like a big kind of end of our existence sale. And then my friend Zach Ozma's selected writings uh diaries of lou sullivan which was their last um i think their last accepted book is being distributed by nightboat and i think all of their back orders are going to be distributed i'm I'm not quite sure what the logistics of that are but yeah well that makes me kind of i i honestly hope they're being distributed through nightboat because they had such a good catalog and i don't want it to sort of fall into that right the copyright hell where no one has the rights Right, exactly. Like that, at least, and that's Nightboat like sorry, sorry, but that, that's sorry. Like, no, you're good. You go. You go. I was just gonna say, like at least Nightboat has. It seems like it's gonna be around for a while. That that's one of those instances where where editing's really editing's really. Oh yeah, no, I agree. <laughs> that, that and when my guests do death threats. Oh yeah, which you that's... steered away from. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, I have not. You know, I I I'm kind of a a nonviolent person, so I generally don't don't do those well like as the editor of this podcast i certainly appreciate that <laughs> it's just like with the amount of ums and as i don't want to throw a death threat in there to make you have to like edit that too yeah i i only really edit the ums and as if they're at the beginning or ends of like when a person speaks otherwise that. it just gets to yeah and then like you're trying to like sew words together and trying to even out the the if somebody ends something with an s and then says like, and then says something with a B. It's just hell. You're just, I can't, it's done. Or I'm, I'm quite guilty of doing upturns at the end of sentences sometimes. And you just can't, you just can't recover from an upturn in editing. <laughs> <laughs> I hope that there's, uh, that everybody listening to this finds it amusing how much of a hell it is to edit a podcast. Yeah, I, you know, I'm, I am lying a bit when I say podcasting is easy. Do it like recording it is easy, promoting it is easy, but scheduling and talking, like just arranging the podcast and then doing the work for the podcast, all that is quite tiring. Well, thank you for doing this one. Yes, thank you for coming on. Um, is there anything else you want to talk about? No, I feel like I've just rambled at you for an hour and I'm so sorry. Um... I mean, that's every episode of this podcast. <laughs> so that's kind of the point. I, I have a feeling like I know all statistics are made up or whatever, but... I, th- I have a feeling like 90% of podcasts are all just people bullshitting, which is kind of beautiful. Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. <laughs> That's the point <laughs> of this one. That's the point. That's the thing. Well, thank you so much for talking. Yeah, thank you. Uh, you want to go out with a death threat? Um... <laughs>